0: We'll get started, so it's good to see everybody here tonight. Handouts in the back if you need it. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I'm thankful to, uh, to be here tonight. I'm just uh, grateful that we have your word, that you've spoken to us. Uh, Father, I'm thankful also for the promise that your spirit is with us, uh, illuminating our minds, uh, giving us strength to study and to teach. I pray that uh, he would work through us tonight so that your son would be glorified and uh, we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so yeah, we are on page 59 in the notes. And uh, question there about footnote 76, what I, what I mean by that. If you'll recall, and maybe this is helpful too, just to kind of review the last two chapters before we get into chapter um, 11... In chapter 9, kind of Paul's main point or big idea was that it was never God's intention to save every Israelite. So the fact that so many Jewish people, both in Paul's day and even today, are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, that in no way uh, brings God's justice or righteousness into question because it's not something he promised. Uh, point number two in chapter 10, this is where we spent most of our time last week, uh, Israel is to blame for that rejection. So when most Jewish people reject the gospel message, it's not God's, uh, it's not God's fault. He's not responsible for it. Um, he actually has made the gospel available to them. He sent out uh, the word. He sent out preachers. They've heard the message. And they still choose to reject it, which means the issue isn't availability or it's not intellectual, but it's actually moral. They actually have a hard heart. But as part of that argument, Paul says something that does seem a little strange just when we first look at it. So the, the verse in question is in verse 18 of chapter 10. He says, but I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. And then he quotes from Psalm 19.4. He says, Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Well, it's pretty clear that in this context, Paul's referring to the preaching of the gospel. So we would call that God's special revelation. So it's something that not everybody has heard, and it's something that is necessary to bring you to saving faith in Jesus. So it's special in that sense because it goes out to specific people. Not everyone who's ever lived has heard the preaching of the gospel. The issue, though, is if you go back to Psalm chapter 19 and look at its original setting, it doesn't seem to be talking about special revelation. It's talking about God's natural revelation or his general revelation. The fact that creation itself tells all people something about god which is a topic that paul referred to in chapter one but it's not his topic now at this point so then the question is well how can paul do that is he playing a little fast and loose with the old testament is he violating its original meaning and there's been different ways of explaining it but i think the most likely one is he's just using the language of that passage for rhetorical purposes He's not saying Psalm 19 was talking about my specific issue. He's saying that Psalm 19 talks about God's general revelation going out to the everyone. And that also applies to the way special revelation has been rejected by the Jewish people. So then the footnote, I call that a rhetorical use of the Old Testament. Uh, some of you are reading Doug Moo's uh, recommended book along with the class. Uh, I think it's in there that I heard him say this. He uses the uh, expression, go ahead, make my day. Now, some of us know what movie that came from, right? It's, it's, the illustration is gradually becoming more and more dated, right? If I used it with my seminary students, they probably wouldn't know what movie that came from. Well, you can use that expression in everyday language. You could say to someone, hey, go ahead, make my day. And they're not necessarily connecting it with its original setting because the the words have kind of taken a life of themselves. And I think that's what Paul's doing with Psalm 19. He has a mind that's saturated with Scripture. Since he was a child, he's memorized Scripture. So I think sometimes portions of Scripture are his best way of describing things rhetorically. But he's not saying that this today is fulfilling that particular passage. So that's what I mean by an echo. An echo is when you hear a little bit of the scriptures that you've heard before, but you're not necessarily supposed to connect the two passages in a, in a fulfillment sense. I don't know if that did that answer your question? Yep. Yeah, okay. I think that's what Paul's doing. I don't, I don't know if that's the best answer. I know it still leaves some questions in your minds. It does, at least for me, but... Uh, I think that's the most likely explanation. Uh, he several times in these passages he quotes from the Old Testament and it's kind of difficult for us to understand. But there's other places where he's very clear. We know exactly what he's doing. And as true of all of scripture, even when there's certain pieces of a paragraph or a section that we're not clear about, you know, what does it mean when Paul says to the Corinthians that they're being baptized for the dead? You know, I have no idea what that means. But I can still figure out the overall idea of the section. The overall message of Scripture is clear, even though some specific pieces here and there still escape us. All right, so then what is the main point that he's trying to get at in chapter 11? So the, we reviewed his, his uh, first two points there, chapter 9 and chapter 10. But then a possible objection might be, but why are there so many Israelites who are unsaved? Uh, yes, Paul, I agree with you. Uh, God never promised that he'd have to save each and every one of them. Uh, yes, I agree with you that the responsibility lies with them because they've rejected the gospel. But why does it have to be so many? It seems to be the majority of them. And if it's so many of them, does that actually mean that God has permanently set them aside? Is he ever going to fulfill all of the promises that he made in the Old Testament? That someday they as a whole group would be saved as a nation. So, this is the way Paul puts these, this hypothetical um, objection. So, this is verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, I asked then, did God reject his people? And we know by now when Paul does that, it's not actually his objection. He's just stating it uh, from a hypothetical person. And his answer to it is, by no means. Okay, so absolutely not. So his big idea is that God has not rejected them, but he's going to develop that further. And his first point is that God's rejection of Israel has always been only partial. There's always been a remnant, and he starts developing that the second half of verse 1. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So his first example on the bottom of page 59 there is, that, is himself. He's an example of an Israelite, specifically one who's from the tribe of Benjamin, and God was very gracious to him, and he saved him. So he's an example. And he says there in verse 2 that God has to keep a remnant because he foreknew. So that's that same language that we heard before. It's the idea of you set your love on somebody, you made a choice about somebody, So it's not just God had knowledge of Israel. He actually set his love upon Israel. And because of that love, he has to have a remnant. And Paul will then say he's always had this remnant all through their history. Verses 3 and 4 there. Well, at the end of verse 2, he says, Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, and here he's quoting from Elijah, They have killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. So, for most of their history, the people of Israel, you probably could say for all of their history, uh, the believing people, the born again people in their midst were always the minority. The, the, the majority of the people, the, the nation at large, was always made up of unbelievers. That's why even when they tried to outwardly conform to the law, they tended to keep sliding into idolatry and just blatant rebellion towards their God. It got so bad in Elijah's day that he thinks, I've got to be the only one left. You know, There's no one else around here. The, the king has married a foreign woman who's brought in Baal worship, the country's not even pretending to worship a golden calf that they call God. They're actually just openly worshiping Baal. And God had to remind him, no, there's actually 7,000 other people out there like you, but that's in a country of hundreds of thousands. So there's, there, it's partial. There's this remnant. And notice that he says there at the end of <laughs> verse 6 that this remnant was always chosen by grace. He says, and if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So this, this remnant was always chosen not based on who they were or what they have done, but based on God's choice to just save them and have love for them. So then that Paul will make an inference from verses 1 through 6 in verse 7. So when he says, what then, there at the beginning of verse 7, He's, he's drawing together a bunch of things that he's already said. He's at least drawing together verses 1 through 6, but I think he even could be thinking back about previous things he said. Things he said about the election of some Israelites and the hardening of other Jewish people. All of this was ultimately the work of God. So you see how that kind of wraps up many of the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. He says there in verse 7, What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So he's going to use language from two Old Testament passages there in verse 8. So I had there in your notes that he's quoting, but maybe we could put quoting in quotes, because this is similar to what we've talked about before, that because the, the biblical authors don't have quotation marks, quotation marks don't exist for them, and because they're not actually claiming to quote, they can paraphrase. And Sometimes they not only paraphrase, but they take two biblical passages and they blend them together. And you notice that he isn't even claiming to cite a specific author. So first, he just says, hey, this is written. If I could paraphrase his language, basically he's saying, hey, this is something that the Old Testament says. And then for the second one, he's specific. He says, this is what David says. And for that one, he is quoting a specific psalm. So most of us Probably have a footnote there in our Bible that says that second one in verses 9 and 10 is from Psalm 69, and it's a pretty close quotation. But the first one, he's thinking of two, two passages. So first of all, most of his language seems to come from Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. And if you recall, that those last few chapters of Deuteronomy are very important to Paul's theology. He's gone back to Deuteronomy several times, because Deuteronomy has both the coming curses that are going to come on the people and also their eventual salvation, which is really important to his statement. But this is what, um, this is what uh, Moses here says to the people in Deuteronomy 29. He says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. So those are Old Testament metaphors. For what the new testament calls the new birth being born again you don't have eyes that can see you don't have ears that can hear uh, you're not able to understand what god is telling you Uh, that's roughly 1400 bc so 1400 years before christ in 700 bc give or take so just using ballpark numbers isaiah writes he says the lord has brought over you a deep sleep he has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. So God is ultimately the one who decides all things. If we, if we ask why something happened, we can go through a bunch of different steps. You know? But if we keep saying why, 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 like a little kid would to their parent, eventually if you keep going up that chain, the chain always ends with because God said so because God decreed it, because it was God's will. Okay? So it was, it was always God's intention that only a small group of people within Israel's history were going to be graciously chosen. So you have 1400 B.C., then you have 700 B.C., and then you have Paul's day uh, at the time of, of the, the first century. It's still the same condition. So we go back to kind of our summary slide here. Um, oh, I forgot to put it, on, put it on there. So, oh, yeah, I did. So verse 8 there, and this is how it has always been. That's what I mean by that. I think that's the, the gist of what Paul is saying with those Old Testament quotations, that this is how it's always been. This isn't something new that there's a remnant. It's always been a remnant. All right, then he's going to go on here in uh, verses 11 through 32 to start a new section. So another big section that goes for a while. So the previous section taught that Israel's rejection was only partial. This section teaches that Israel's rejection, rejection was only temporary. All right. So you see how that is a little bit different? So if, if partial doesn't satisfy your view of God's justice, uh, Paul's also pointing to the fact that, yes, those promises that you might be thinking of from the Old Testament— that seem to say that someday they'll all be saved, they still can come true. Because this this hardening that you see uh, currently is only temporary. It won't last forever. So this is what he says there in verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. All right, so as the Old Testament predicted, God will one day again have mercy on Israel, causing her to repent, and he will restore her to an even greater status than she had before. When he says there in verse 11 that they had stumbled but not with the result that they had permanently fallen beyond recovery. He's using fall there in the sense of permanent spiritual ruin. So uh, back in the day, you know, there was a sitcom, sitcom where the guy would say, I've fallen and I can't get up. Do you remember that? That was, that was a, kind of a catchy phrase for a while. It's a little more recently than make my day, right? So I'm getting closer to our time period. This is a fall that you can get up for them. I mean, that's the question is when they look at Israel in their day, they see them underneath the rule of Rome. They see many of them as enemies to the gospel. They see collectively the nation of Israel has not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. So that is, in a sense, a fall. It's a serious step backwards from where they were, for example, underneath the rule of King David and King Solomon. The question then is, well, is that fall permanent? Is this the type of fall that they can get back up from. And is, or, uh, Paul's answer to that is, yes, they will be able to stand again. Not only is this a fall from which they will recover, but God also has a very good purpose in, in Israel's temporary stumble. He used it as an opportunity to extend salvation to the Gentiles, which will provoke Israelites to jealousy and eventually lead to their return to God. Remember, Paul has already mentioned this purpose earlier when he quoted from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.21. So just to remind ourselves again of that passage, remember we said this is essentially Israel's national anthem. It's a song that was given to Moses to teach the people so that they would keep singing it throughout their history, and it would give them a broad overview of where they came from and where they were headed. There was going to be a long period of time where they weren't acting like God's children. So as disobedient children, their father was going to chastise them. He was going to punish them. He was going to bring severe covenant curses upon them. But that wasn't the final story. Um, We read the end of it last time. But just to remind you of that one phrase, God said, I will make them envious by those who are not a people. So even I say here, even back on the plains of Moab, Before Israel even entered the promised land, God was already predicting that they would someday be sent into exile, and then provoked to repentance through the salvation of people who at that time were not even God's people. So Israel's repentance and restoration will lead to the establishment of Jesus' kingdom on earth in which the curse's effects will be rolled back and eventually removed. Therefore, what awaits Gentile believers on the other side of Israel's restoration is even greater than that what they are presently experiencing doing to Israel's rejection. So that, that fits into Paul's argument, because he's basically saying that God has a very good reason for what he's doing. Him allowing them to stumble and go through this long period where they're being punished is serving a good purpose because it caused an opportunity for us as Gentiles to come to Christ. But on the other hand, as we come to Christ, the people who were pagan and not looking for him, it's actually going to provoke the original recipients of the gospel to jealousy. They're going to wish that they also had turned to their Messiah and they eventually will. And so on the other side of our salvation, Israel's salvation will come. And I'll try to show you that that's what Paul's saying as we work through the passage. The first thing that he's going to say here is in verses uh, 12 through 15. Let me read that, and then I'll put up a slide kind of doing an overview. So in verse 12, he says, But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And then he takes a little bit of a pause here, and he emphasizes the fact that he has a particular responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles, which is part of the church in Rome, (laughs) inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So isn't that interesting? He was commissioned to actually take the good news to Gentiles. But if you remember from the book of Acts, that doesn't exclude him also preaching to Jewish people. He frequently would go first to their synagogues when he would enter towns. And he says here that part of his motivation, not only is it because Jesus told him to do it, but also based on his reading of the Old Testament, he hopes that as he brings more and more Gentiles to salvation that he'll actually be completing what Deuteronomy 32 was talking about. That his own people, his fellow Jewish people, would be provoked to jealousy, and that he would actually be able to see some of them saved. So that's the little bit aside that he says in verses 13 and 14. But then if you notice, verse 15 is very parallel to verse 12. He just goes back to his same idea, and he says, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So let's try, to, let's try to visualize that up there. You know I like colors, right, to try to make things parallel. So this is, this is good, um, good parallelism. It's almost poetic, right? It's common for the biblical writers to do this. Uh, when they write things to make them catchy, uh, they don't use rhyming like we do today. In English, we like to make things rhyme and sound the same. They're more uh, likely to do parallelism. So it seems like his first two lines say the same thing different ways. He says, but if their transgression means riches for the world, so the transgression would be the negative, you know, negative punishments that they're currently under because of their sin, but it's going to lead to riches for the world. That's what we're currently experiencing. He's thinking of the gospel going out to the nations. But then he says it again, if they're lost, so loss is the same thing as transgression, and that's going to mean riches for the Gentiles. So here, instead of world, he says Gentiles. So his argument is from the lesser to the greater. If God could do so much for Gentiles, like most of us probably here tonight, through Israel's loss, then imagine what he could do through their gain, right? If they someday are no longer transgressors, and they are someday no longer at a loss, then he could do even far more. And then after his little aside about his ministry, he comes back in verse 15, there at the bottom of the screen, he says almost the same thing again, except now he makes it explicit what this great gain is. He says, "...their rejection brought reconciliation to the world." What will their acceptance be? So there's a new idea. Their acceptance be, but life from the dead. So that's his logic here. That if God could do so much through their transgression and their loss, then what would he do someday through their acceptance? Well, that's going to have to be big. And the big thing that he's actually thinking here is life from the dead. So let's just walk through that real quick. So picking it up there in the middle of that bullet point on 61, so I showed you there, I think, that the phrases riches for the world and riches for the Gentile, they're, they're parallel, they're synonymous. They describe the inclusion of Gentiles in, in salvation. Israel's transgression and loss, they're also parallel. They lead to these riches. So Paul argues, imagine how much greater will, riches will come to the Gentiles when Israel is restored. That word there translated as full inclusion, in verse 12, could refer to the full number of saved Israelites, but more likely in this context it refers to Israel's salvation and everything God intends for Israel to be. So he's not, I, I don't think he's thinking of numbers here, so he's not thinking someday there'll be a full number of Israelites um, saved. I think he's using full in, as in the sense of fully restored. <coughs> someday they'll be fully restored and brought back to fully reflect everything God originally created them to be. So there, I, I talked a little bit about his role as an instrument by God to the Gentiles. Uh, the end of that bullet point, I think when he refers to life from the dead, it could include the resurrection from the dead. I think that's at least included. But I think it's also the lifting of the curse for the whole world. He already referred to the the groaning that the world currently experiences, the the birth pains, he talks about it. There's a sense that we all have in this world that things are not right, that they have to be made right someday. Uh, We have a sense of our own mortality. We see sin and death all around us. Uh, Obviously, we're looking forward to the resurrection from the dead. That's a big part of it. But that's not all that will happen. It will also be the removal of the curse from this whole world. So much so that in the end, it's going to be like one of those extreme makeover shows where the house really gets knocked down and a new house gets built, right? It's a new heavens and a new earth, okay? There are some elements that go from one to the other, but the only element that I'm absolutely sure is people. People from this world will go into the new heavens and the new earth through Jesus Christ. I think that's the that's the hope that Paul here is referring to as life from the dead. All right, so then he he stops here to make a warning to Gentile believers. So how does this fit in verses 16 through 24? Well, I think this fits in because he's specifically thinking about the situation in the Roman church. When he gets just a couple chapters later, what we call the chapters, which would for him would've been a couple more twists of the scroll, He's going to start talking about the issues that they have between the the weak and the strong and their assembly, the things that are dividing them. And as far as we can tell, those break down on ethnic lines. There's issues between Gentiles and Jewish people. One of the potential hurdles is that we as Gentile Christians, we could become proud or smug because of our acceptance we could start looking down on the Jewish people who have been rejected, all right? So that's, that's what Paul's addressing here. And the way he does it is through his famous olive tree analogy. So we've got the olive tree there, and there's at least uh, three things, I think three specific things about the olive tree that correspond to realities, to people in the real world, okay? So first of all, I think you've got an olive tree here, and it illustrates the family tree, so to speak. All right. So I'll try to just stick to my notes here so I don't forget anything. I'm just going to go through those bullet points at the bottom of page 61. So the olive tree illustrates the family tree, so to speak, of those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And i give you there a couple other references where Paul talks similarly. So the goal of the illustration is to warn Gentile believers not to become arrogant because of their status in God's family. So as we go through this passage, it is very uh, pertinent, significant for um, like our view of the end times and prophecy and what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Those are all very uh, interesting topics, and they are relevant to what Paul says here. But as we progress, we also have to remember his main point for what he's talking about. His main point isn't to fill in all of the details of prophecy. He actually assumes that we'll get that from other places in the Bible. His main point is to address the possible uh, uh, arrogance or smugness that a Gentile Christian could have towards uh, Israelites. So he reminds them here that they, as Gentile believers are only there because of God's grace. So in the illustration, the olive tree represents God's plan to dispense mercy according to the promise that he made to Abraham. From a human perspective, we might expect God's plan to proceed along biological lines from Abraham. But the analogy demonstrates that this is not always the case. So the root he refers to in verse 17, so that's the first element, verse 17 He says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. All right, so this this root, whatever it is, it gives the nourishment to the rest of the tree. He calls it the nourishing sap. We have another clue to what it is too, though, because in verse 16, he kind of mixes his metaphors. So first he's using like a, a baking illustration. He says there's a lump of dough, and if part of the lump of dough is the first fruits, that it's holy, it makes the rest of the batch holy. And then he switches, if the root is holy, so are the branches, so I think because of the way he puts those parallel, we could say that the root and the piece of the dough are the same thing. It's two ways of describing the same thing. So out of this whole family tree, there's a, there's a kernel that makes it special, that makes it holy. Uh, when we use the word holy, I think we have to remember that that doesn't necessarily mean completely free of sin. So we, we tend to use holy often in kind of just a moral sense to refer to a lack of sin. But its more basic sense just means to be set apart, to be different than everything else, to have a special purpose. So there was something about this tree at its root, so to speak, at its beginnings, that made it special. It makes the rest of the tree holy. And even if there's other elements of the tree that might make God reject them, because of this root, whatever it is, he has to keep his promises. And so I think when we start thinking that way, it's pretty clear what Paul's referring to. And he refers to this several other times in his letter. It's the promises made to the patriarchs. He's especially thinking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three men who weren't perfectly good men, they were sinners just like you and I, they had God graciously appear to them and make them great promises that through them, the rest of the world would be blessed. I mean, this is just one example. So this is Genesis chapter 22. Uh, This is the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. So if we stop there, that it's specifically referring to his, the great nation that he would have. Right? And we see this coming true uh, pretty quickly in the Pentateuch. Right? We're getting towards the middle point of the book of Genesis. Right? The story kind of ends on a, kind of on a cliffhanger, right? Because Joseph and his family are in Egypt. They don't appear to be as numerous as the stars or like the sand of the seashore. But when the very next book starts, the book of Exodus, we find out there's so many of them in Egypt, right, that the Pharaoh is actually trying to control the population. He's trying to tamp down on them. And by the time they leave, there's just this huge crowd of hundreds of thousands of them. So that part of the promise did come true to Abraham. But it continues. He says, Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because you have obeyed my command. So, you remember the the word there, it also could be translated seed. And seed is one of those tricky words, because seed can be either a singular, or it could be a collective. It could be talking about one specific descendant, or it could be talking about all of your descendants. Even our English word offspring is similar, right? But we have an authoritative interpretation of this passage because Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us that this passage referred to Jesus. Jesus is the offspring there in red. Jesus, the Messiah, is the specific descendant of Abraham, and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All right, so what is this? What is this root that has nourishing sap that sustains the whole tree? It's specifically the patriarchs and the promises that God made to them. They form the foundation of this spiritual family. And you don't get into the family just because of your DNA, just because of your biological connections. You get in because you have the same type of faith that Abraham had. All right, so the root is the patriarchs. Any, any questions there? I'll stop for, stop for a second just to make sure we're all tracking and I haven't been confusing because that, that will happen eventually. All right, we'll pick up then number two. At the top of page 62, verse 17, I think when he refers to wild branches, these are Gentile believers who have been grafted into the household of faith even though they have no biological connection to, to Abraham. So I think he, you know, he, in verse 13, if you notice, he's saying, you Gentiles, so they seem to be directly being addressed. So then in verse 17, when he says, you, though a wild olive shoot, he's still talking to the same group of people. So it's you as Gentiles. If you're a Gentile Christian here tonight, then you are the wild branch. I'm the wild branch in this illustration. This was a gracious act of God, and it should not lead to arrogance. God could just as easily cease from saving Gentiles. That's what he says there in verses 20 through 21. That if we were grafted in while other people were broken off, we could just as easily see it reversed. We could be broken off and other people could be grafted in. So who then are these natural branches? So first they were broken off. But then in verses 24 through 25, he or just 24, in verse 24, he refers to a future day when they could be grafted back then. He says, after all, in verse 24, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. I was just trying to think there for a second. What time are we supposed to break for our break? Is it 6.40 or 6.45? It's 40? 40? Okay, so we're at the break time? All right, we'll stop there, and uh, we'll come back. If you think of a question, you can ask me when we start back up, but I'll give you your 10-minute break here while I'm still thinking of it. All right. Do You have a question? All right. Is it a question for everybody, or just... Okay, All right. I'll, get my, I'll get my microphone on so that it can be recorded. On the, on the off chance that I say something really profound, I want to make sure it gets on the video. <laughs> you know, we're talking about, we're supposed to be witnessing to people, how much do you, wit- how much do you witness? Thank um, you. Because, you know, I've, I've seen people at, with good intentions know they're approaching people and they give them the gospel and stuff and these people really don't want anything to do with it yeah Um, and you keep and 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 people are very concerned about the salvation of their souls of this the unsaved ones and the unsaved ones aren't concerned so when you know do you just tell them one time and hope that they understood it and let god do the rest of the work or do you bug them and think you're responsible that they're not accepting? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I think kind of my default position is I just keep sharing as much as I can. So you know, I came to Christ as a child, so my parents were believers, so you know God was kind to me that way. But I'm guessing if we went around the room, those of us who came to Christ as adults, probably for most of you, it wasn't the first time you heard the gospel, right? It was probably after several times, at least, repeated. That seems to be a pretty normal experience that I hear, hear about from Christians. That uh, I would think the only principle that I can think of in the New Testament that would cause us to stop and move on to other people would be the principle that Jesus talks about, that there's some people who are so dangerous that they would actually stop us from sharing the gospel with other people. So in uh, Matthew chapter 10, he says you're, you're allowed to you know, flee from one town, but you're supposed to flee so that you can go to the next town. So it's not flee as in, I'm going to go live in a monastery and hide. It's fleeing so that you can keep on preaching. Uh, the other principle that's kind of related there is uh, about not casting your pearls before swine. Uh, that one is kind of hard for us to understand because we, we kind of like pigs. I'm, I'm from Iowa. I like pigs. But uh, pigs in their culture, they weren't domesticated animals. Remember, they don't raise pigs for food. So pigs were wild, and they were violent. Uh, you know, Even in Iowa, we know that if you, if you faint or have a heart attack in a pig pen, you're going to be in trouble, right? The pigs are going to eat you. So they'll eat anything, yeah. So, so I think there, his principle is there's, there's people in this world that are dangerous, they will eat you alive, so to speak, if I can use that metaphor. And there are going to be certain times where we have to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves, Jesus says. And we're going to have to say, hey, if I, if I stay in this relationship, in this conversation, this person is going to cause me to not be able to continue sharing the gospel with other people. <coughs> so in that situation, I'm going to have to detach and go to other people. Uh, So then we have to think through wisely what that would look like. Uh, But apart from those types of situations, I think as many opportunities as God gives us, we keep on sharing because, yeah, with the same, I would with the same people. Yeah. So because you never know uh, when God will finally save them or if he'll save them. I mean, until, until, you know, our mission is done and we're with, with christ either at the rapture or through death i say we just keep sharing to as many people as possible but then you've got that principle that if that particular relationship is going to end your life or cause you some kind of injury so that you can't continue maybe then you detach from them so that you can go on to others does that does that make sense yeah yep I also think, like you say, if it's somebody you're seeing all the time, well, if they know what you're professing, now you've got to live, life, live what you're professing, and they're going to look at how you live a lot more than what you say. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in the workplace, for example, if they know you're a believer, they better know you're a believer, and you're professing the gospel. But if you're not living it, they're just going to scoff. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 true. So Peter talks about our actions adorning the gospel. So uh, they they have to hear. So you know, Paul said in chapter ten that you know they can't call on someone who they've not heard in, that who they've not heard of. Uh, they can't hear unless somebody preaches. They can't preach unless they're sent. So. It won't be our lives by ourselves, and I think you'd agree with that. Mm-hmm. But it definitely has to be a life that matches what we preach, right? That we can, as Christians, we can live inconsistently with the gospel. And that would be the opposite of what Peter is calling adorning the gospel. Yep, that's a good point. All right, well, those, are, those are related to what we're talking about here, because um, Paul is making it very clear that there are some people who are saved and some people who are hardened, right? And so, remember, ultimately, if you keep asking why about any question, the answer that you inevitably will get to is because God. That's always the end of the chain. After that, there is no other place to go. But we're not God. <laughs> we, we don't know what someone's spiritual state is. We, we always hold out hope for them. Uh, Because we, like Paul, like it, we're we have a we should have a compassion towards sinners. You know, twice in this passage, chapters nine through eleven, he kind of bears his soul and lets you know that it, it deeply grieves him that most of his countrymen are rejecting the gospel. So, not I don't want to get into politics or what's happening in current events, but as Christians, just thinking theologically. It should deeply grieve us that most of the Jewish people today have rejected the Messiah. And they are tragically suffering consequences from that. And we should long for the day when that's made right. And and that's Paul's point in this passage, is that it will. It eventually will. We're living in an until time, but eventually the the Deliverer will come from Zion. That's what he's going to say in verse 26. All right? So we talked about, in the olive tree analogy, the olive root. We talked about the wild branches. We talked about the natural branches. And I think his point there is that these Israelites, this is my second bullet point there on page 62, whom you would expect to belong to the family that began with the patriarchs, They've actually been broken off because of their unbelief. But God could just as easily graft them back in. In fact, it would seem that it would be easier to graft in natural branches as opposed to wild branches. So he's drawing from a little bit of horticulture there. I'm not a horticulturist, but I'm assuming that the branch that originally came off that tree would have an easier time of going back in and surviving than a foreign branch that had been brought from another tree. So I'm, here, I'm quoting here from my colleague. So uh, Sam Dawson's wrote a very good article on this passage, and I've used it several times, so here I'll just take a direct quote. He says, For sake of argument, it clearly was harder for God, in, in quotes, harder, to graft wild olive branches into a cultivated olive tree because they themselves were cut off from a wild olive tree. Yet God did it. So certainly God can and will do the easier graft, the easier thing, graft the natural branches back into their own tree, especially since God has covenanted with the Jews to do so. Therefore, we might say that not only has God promised to save Israel, but it also will not be too difficult for him. All right. I know sometimes, you know, this is a hotly debated issue among uh, Christians. Uh, Good brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we disagree over the end times. But I think we all should agree with the fact that God can do this. It seems like it's humanly impossible, right, for a nation that has traditionally and for so long rejected Jesus as their king. But that doesn't mean it's impossible for God. God does the impossible things. And as I like to think of it, I think this is a very God-like thing to do. <laughs> this is the exact type of thing that he's done all through his history. He's taken very unlikely people, and he's turned them into trophies of his grace. And what greater expression of his grace than if he took his covenanted people of Israel who have rejected him for so long, and he finally converts them and redeems them and makes them into what they were originally created to be. So then Paul switches here in verses 25 through 32 to describing something he calls a mystery. He says in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So there's this mystery or sometimes our bibles will translate that as secret and Paul wants us to know what it is and he wants us to know why he wants us to know about it so that we won't be arrogant or conceited, okay? So this word mystery, it's a truth about God's plan previously not known by man but revealed to his people. So instead of reading through that rest of that paragraph, I'll just show it to you up here on the screen. So when uh, Paul chooses to use this word mystery or secret, uh, he's not coining that himself. He's drawing from a rich tradition that's already present in the Old Testament. So starting with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was used in the book of Daniel. Do you remember the story in Daniel chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's about the, the statue who's made out of different metals. And Nebuchadnezzar decides to put his wise men to the test. And he says, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream was. You know, because if, you, if I tell you what the dream is, and then you give me an interpretation, how do I know that's true? But if you can actually tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me the interpretation, well, then that would be saying something, wouldn't it? Well, they, they say no one can do that. No wise man can do what the king has asked us to do. But remember, Daniel can, but then Daniel's very careful to say, but it's not really me. There's a God in heaven who knows these things, and he's going to give me the interpretation of the dream. And if you remember, the, the statue there represents the world empires throughout Israel's history, all the way from Nebuchadnezzar himself until the what's still future from our perspective, the second coming of Jesus. So that huge swath of human history is represented by that statue, and that's part of God's plan, his blueprint for this world. And he gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and he also gave Daniel the interpretation. So this is what the king says after he gets it. He says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery." So even there, from the get-go, in the book of Daniel, it's it's about something big. It's about something grand. It's about God's plan for this world. It's about something that He has always known, but He's now choosing to give you a little piece of it. You know, you and I can't see His whole plan. You guys stop me if I've already given you this illustration. If I've talked about going to Gettysburg and seeing the cyclorama, does that sound familiar? I've had some of you for three semesters in a row. So inevitably, you're going to hear me say the same things. So I have to be careful about that. So I like to go to uh, Civil War battlefields for fun. I know that's nerdy. But um, if you go to Gettysburg, they've got that cyclorama, that huge painting that became popular before they had motion pictures. So it was a tourist uh, thing where they've got this painting. If I remember correctly, it's 40 foot tall. And it goes in a 360 all around you so that when you stand in the room, you can't see the whole canvas at once. It's too huge. The whole canvas depicts the third day of the battle, but you have to have someone shine lights on it and then narrate different portions because you as a human can only look at pieces of it at a time. Well, I think of that as God's decree, so to speak. God has a blueprint or this plan, a plan for His universe all the way from creation to the new creation. He knows exactly what He's going to do, but He only gives us little glimpses of it here and there. Every once in a while, He reveals a truth. He shines a light, just like they do on that cyclorama, and He tells us something through His prophets. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had the privilege of. That's what Daniel had the privilege of. And now Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 13, and he uses mystery the same way. He's referring to new things about God's plan from Israel's history to the second coming that they previously couldn't see. If you remember in Matthew chapter 13, it's the parable of the soils. It's the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. It's the man who finds the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure It's all about this in-between time that you and I live in, where the gospel is being preached to Gentiles, and there's this new community that's being built between Jesus' first coming and second coming. You couldn't have clearly saw that in the Old Testament. It wasn't clearly ever predicted that there would be this time period that you and I now know is between Jesus' two comings. But Jesus told us about it in Matthew 13. Well, now Paul comes along, And he's using that same kind of language to describe the church, this time period. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he calls it the mystery about Christ. And then he says specifically, it's the Gentiles, are co-heirs, member of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this mystery, this secret that we previously couldn't see, is that there is a new body being built. We call it the church. And it's going to exist between Jesus' first coming and second coming. And in the church, there's no division between Jew and Gentile. We're all co-heirs together. We're members of the same body. We're partners in the promise. How did we get to be partners? The same way Genesis chapter 22 said we were going to. It was through the seed of Abraham, through the Christ, the Messiah, through through Jesus. So this is the mystery. Paul wants us to, to understand this. Because if we understand this as Gentiles, it will keep us from being conceited. So let me go to the very bottom of that uh, paragraph. The Old Testament promised Israel salvation, and it promised the salvation of Gentiles along Israel's rebe- alongside Israel's rebellion, and that Gentiles would eventually join Israel in the coming kingdom. But it did not clearly reveal that there would be a long period in which God's people in this world would consist primarily of Gentiles, and that Israel's salvation would follow this time when Gentiles were coming to salvation. So the prophets looked towards the future, and they could see a day when there would be a kingdom, and in that kingdom was a restored Israel, and there was lots of Gentiles, Gentiles coming from all over the world to worship the king in Jerusalem. So Gentiles getting saved is nothing new. That's what the Old Testament always promised. But what they couldn't clearly see was that there would be a time where it was mostly Gentiles being saved before Israel was actually restored. That's this mystery that Paul refers to. And he goes on to explain it further. At the end of verse 25, he says that Israel will be saved after the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So here I think he is thinking like numerically, that there's a, there's a certain number of Gentiles that God is going to save. And when that full number is completed, and God is done building what we call this church, this new community, then all Israel will be saved. Let me just read that whole section for us. So He says in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarch. See, that's going back to that root idea. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were, one, you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all." So it's that phrase there, all Israel, that's one of the controversial points. So what does he mean here that all Israel will be saved? Well, I don't think it means that every single Israelite will repent. But I think it points to Christ's second coming, where the nation, as a result of repentance and judgment, will be totally cleansed of her sins. We'll come back there to Zechariah chapter 13 in just a second. But that would be one passage Zechariah chapter 13 and also Ezekiel 20. So all Israel, there's no indication in this passage that he's switched to using Israel in some other sense other than the descendants of Jacob. And for example, if you look at verse 26 that I just read, he specifically refers to turning godlessness away from Jacob. So there's many indications that he's using Israel in a very natural biological sense. So what does he mean, and in this way, all Israel will be saved? Well, scholars debate whether that means the way, as in the manner, or it could mean the time when they're saved. So um, he could be talking about the means or the manner by which God goes about this, or he could be talking about a time frame. I actually think it's the first option. So I actually think he's describing how Israel will be saved. That's the more natural way of taking it. But the how also does include a time (laughs) so either way you slice it you kind of arrive at the same place so the way israel will be saved is actually according to a very specific chronological order that god has ordained that was part of his plan all along so that paul lays out three steps here so how will israel be saved well first of all there'll be a time where they're hardened in part not every israelite because Paul himself is an exception, and we know Jewish believers today. But there is a a partial hardening that's taking place. And that'll last, he says, too, until all the full numbers of Gentiles come in. So there's a time period where the church is growing and the full number of Gentiles come in. Then, he says, Israel will be saved. So the Old Testament had always said Israel was going to be saved. What Paul is coming along now and adding to that is that, but you didn't know how that was going to take place it was going to take place in this three-step process that the old testament didn't clearly reveal. Paul there in that next bullet point on page 63, he supports this prediction regarding Israel's future salvation with a combination of Isaiah 59:20 and Isaiah 27:9 and I mean this is lots of different old testament passages rolled in cuz he probably also is thinking about Jeremiah 31 in psalm 14 7. so i'm suggesting here that this is a reference to Jesus' second coming where he comes to take away the sin of the people one one objection though and you might have thought of this if you look at that quotation there in verse 26 if this is jesus coming from heaven at his second coming to save the people of israel then why does he say the deliverer will come from zion Do you see that That would be one argument that people would use to say, well, this this can't be talking about that because it's got the Messiah coming out of Jerusalem, not coming to Jerusalem. So why would Paul use that language? Well, there's a couple different passages that I think he's thinking of, and one of them is Psalm 14.7. So in Psalm 14.7, the psalmist, looking at the condition of his people, he cries out to God, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. You hear that language? When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So the reason why they have to say out of Israel is because not all Israelites will be in the promised land. One of the covenant curses that was promised all the way back in those chapters in Deuteronomy that we keep going back to was that they would be scattered. You know, they would go through stages of punishment. First, they said that they would start receiving some of the the plagues that fell on Egypt. They would start receiving uh, nations that would come in and, and persecute them and torment them. But if they went through all of these different stages and they didn't repent, the ultimate punish would be to be expelled from their promised land, to be scattered in exile all over the world, which I think if you look around at our world today, that would describe most of the people of Israel. They are scattered in this world. So the picture is that someday the Messiah will come to Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14 says that he will land on the Mount of Olives. His feet will touch down. The mountain will split in two. It's got this very dramatic picture there in the prophecy. But then he'll also restore his people. He'll regather his scattered people, bring them back to their promised land where they will be safe forever. So I think actually that coming from Zion... Instead of working against the second coming interpretation, I think it actually fits better with it. Another passage I think that he's likely thinking of, we'll go back to Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Sometimes the question is, well, does that mean each and every single Jewish people or Jewish person will get saved? Have you thought about that question or somebody asked you that question? I think sometimes that question is taken to such an extreme that you'll occasionally get Christians that almost have an attitude where, well, I don't really need to witness to my Jewish neighbors and friends or coworkers, right? Because in the end, they will all be saved. But I think that's a misconception. It's a misunderstanding of what the prophecies entail. The prophecy is looking at an entire nation collectively that's saved, but the prophecies also describe judgment. Right? So that I think if we follow Paul's example, if we follow Jesus' example, we will continue calling Jewish people, just like we do Gentile people, to saving faith in Christ. Right? Because each and every individual is not promised to be saved in the end. This is one passage that describes their salvation, and you see both sides of it. You see the salvation and the judgment. So, Zechariah looks forward to Jesus' return. He says, on that day, so that's the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back to wage his campaign to take back what's rightfully his, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, now God's speaking, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land, In the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God." So currently, they're going through a time period where, for example, the prophet Hosea says they're being treated as if they weren't God's people. And he's actually turned to us as Gentiles, and he's gathering us as a people. But someday, he will go back to his original people. The prophecy says that he'll cleanse them from their sins. He'll remove idolatry from their land. He'll put them through a time of testing that will refine them, where in the prophecy here, two-thirds of them perish, but the one third of them that comes through to the other side will be purified and they'll be able to renew their covenant vows, just like Hosea prophesied. They'll be able to say to God, uh, we are your people, and God will be able to say of them, you are my people. Or, you are my God, you are my people. Uh, finally here, I think this, uh, this word, uh, let us see, When I was picking up where I was going to le- lift off. Uh, I think that's everything I want to talk about on that bullet point. Let's go down to the third bullet point. So to, to summarize here, there's three, three main views regarding what it means that all Israel will be saved. First of all, it could mean that God is saving both Israelites and Gentiles throughout history. So, i.e. Israel equals believers in the church. So that would be one approach. People would come to this passage... And they would suggest that when Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, he's using Israel to refer to the believing church. But that's a pretty significantly, uh, that's a, it's in the minority. There's just not very many people anymore that are arguing that, who are studying Romans deeply, because there's just not any clear indication in the text that he's switched to using Israel to refer to Gentiles. That would actually seem to contradict many of the things that he said in this passage. For example, what would it mean that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, if he's using Israel to equal Gentiles? That whole, sense, that whole sentence, at least in my mind, wouldn't make sense. Number two, it could mean that God is saving Israelites throughout history as they join the church. So I think that's a more likely option. So this option would say, yes, it is about Jewish people, descendants of Jacob, but what Paul means is that they're trickling in slowly. So he's talking about this time period that you and I are living in, and gradually each time a Jewish person comes to Christ, Israel is becoming more and more saved until finally it's complete, and all Israel will be saved. So that would be one option. But I think the third one here is most likely. I think it could mean that God will save a large number of Israelites at the end of this age, creating a nation that is completely redeemed. I think this last option is best for a few different reasons. First of all, it's consistent with the context, which is focused on God's promise to save the Israelites, which I think clearly eliminates view number one. Second, it best qualifies as a mystery because it includes a three-stage progression. Israel rejected, Gentiles being saved, and then Israel saved, which was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament, which would seem to eliminate views one and two. Does that make sense? The second view, where they're just kind of gradually trickling in, I don't see how that would be a new revelation. That would seem to be something that the Old Testament had already described. Third, I think it best explains the use of the word until in verse 25. All right, Until just seems to set up some kind of condition that something is happening now that's different than what's going to happen in the future. I just think that's how it has to work. And I think this is also illustrated by another place in the Bible where this same type of language is used. So in Luke's gospel, when he records Jesus' it Discourse, he, instead of telling the story exactly the same way that Matthew and Mark does, he moves around bits and pieces of it. So he has one piece of it in chapter 12. He has another portion of it in, in, in chapter 17. And then when he actually gets to chapter 21, he has kind of a shorter version of what they have. And then he includes a unique portion. The explanation for that is that Jesus taught all of those things, and he probably taught them on more than one occasion. And each one of the gospel writers is just giving you a piece of it. So Luke is specifically... Referring to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. The coming um, judgment that, that the Romans bring in AD 70. He describes that as Jerusalem being encircled by their armies. And he says that this will continue. It says, They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, The Romans will come and they will destroy the temple. There'll be a time of suffering and exile. People will fall by the sword. They'll be taken as prisoners to other nations. And this time period that they're entering into, this very dark time period that that starts with AD 70, will last until this time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. I think the language is close enough there that it's parallel to what Paul is saying here that there's going to be this time where the full number of Gentiles come in, and then all those things that Luke 21 is talking about, those negative things, the sword, the exile, they get reversed. They actually will come to an end. And that would fit, I think, with those Old Testament passages that we looked at and what the Bible in general says about God's plan for the people of Israel. Any, Any questions about that there? It's a hotly debated passage, so yes don't you think that kind of <clears throat> destroys the preterist argument? That they're, they're stopping at the fall of Jerusalem, and they're completely ignoring all this here, the scattering? Yeah, so the, the preterist argument says that everything that... G, you know, I mean, there's different versions of it, but just a common approach would be that um, most of the things Jesus talks about in his Olivet Discourse have already come true, that they were all fulfilled in 80-70. And you bring up a good point that that doesn't seem to fit here because this language of until the times of the Gentiles fulfilled, that just kind of naturally sounds like a long period of time. Uh, I think there's other reasons why um, the preterist approach doesn't work in the, all of the discourse, but that would be, that would be one of them. I also I think it makes sense to me that Luke would use this type of language because it's pretty widely recognized that he seems to be the closest to Paul's theology and Paul's way of talking, which would make sense because he was Paul's close companion. So for him to write a gospel account about Jesus and use many of the same concepts and ideas that the Apostle Paul uses in his letters, at least in my mind, that seems very plausible. There, There seems to be a good reason for the two of them, that they would sound alike. And this is a place where I think, Luke sounds very much like the Apostle Paul. So how does this end? Let's wrap this up then with this this doxology. So Paul is seen in chapters 9 through 11, uh, God's justice, God's righteousness, what's happening currently in his day with the people of Israel. And we could say the same thing about our day, even though it's sad and it grieves us, It in no way uh, makes God in the wrong. It in no way should call in His justice. First of all, He never promised that He would save every single Israelite. Secondly, they themselves are responsible for rejecting the gospel, just like we were as unbelievers. And thirdly, it's only temporary. Someday the prophecies will be fulfilled. The Redeemer will come from Israel. And now Paul, he can see this more clearly than anyone living during the Old Testament era could. So we're not just talking about the difference between an unbeliever and a believer looking at the Old Testament. We're talking about something more than that. We're actually saying there's things in the Old Testament that weren't clearly revealed. They were mysteries. They were kept secrets. But now through the prophets, they've been given to us. And now that we can fill in more of the details, we'll never be able to see that whole 360 picture that I described. We'll never have God's mind. We'll never be able to see the whole picture. But we're given what he does tell us. And when we step back and think about that, how he has been so gracious and kind to us as Gentiles, allowing Israel's rebellion to continue so that more and more of us keep getting added to the church, and then if he turns around and he shows kindness to them— What does that say about God's wisdom and greatness? And so this is how the Apostle Paul ends this section. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him, are all things to him be the glory forever amen seems like a good place to close all right so we are we are off next week so if you show up next week i won't be here okay you have a class all by yourself john won't be here either all right but in lord willing in 2 weeks we'll be back and we'll jump into chapter 12 have a good thanksgiving